Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Invisible War, with a message entitled, Can Christians Be Demon-Possessed? So let's turn in our Bibles together to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. In this brief two-week study on spiritual warfare, I've tried to explain the reality of a great unseen war. You know, we've acknowledged that there is but one eternal and all-powerful God. And we've also acknowledged that the altogether glorious God does not need anything, either to satisfy his own needs or to accomplish his purposes. But out of an expression of his unbounded joy, the great eternal God created. And as we have seen that his creation, at least from our perspective, includes the unseen realm and the seen or the material realm. And furthermore, we've perceived that the rebellion among some of the angelic beings poured out into the realm of the seen physical world of the human race. Our first parents were deceived by the serpent, that is by Satan himself, and and thus we all became subject to death. But of course, in the fullness of time, Christ became our Savior, and in so doing, by his sacrificial and atoning death on the cross, he has defeated Satan. And on his cross, our Messiah has delivered a mortal blow to the enemy of God, who is also the enemy of the human race. Jesus is now raiding the kingdom of Satan, and he's rescuing his chosen ones out of the kingdom of darkness. Essentially, this is the spiritual warfare that we as believers face today. And it is also fair to say that every human being is affected by the reality of spiritual warfare. There are places in the world where the enemy of our souls works with human governments to keep the light of the glorious gospel away from human beings. And there are other places where the lies against Jesus are easily spread. They're either half-truths or outright fabrications and strong delusions to deceive the sons and daughters of Adam. And so we are right now living in a warfare in which the souls of billions of people worldwide are in the balance, and that's the war. Genesis 3.15, which follows right after the fall into sin, is a verse that explains this present darkness. God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we know that Jesus is the seed or the offspring of the woman. The serpent has bruised the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will eventually crush the head of the serpent. Until that final victory over Satan is played out, the great struggle will also play itself out over the lost children of Adam and Eve. And when I state things this way, I don't mean to imply that the struggle between Jesus and Satan is a struggle between equals. Christ could crush Satan today, but because of his infinite wisdom, He has chosen not to do so for the sake of the elect or the sake of those he has chosen. When I speak about the final battle, I'm going to explain that matter more fully later on. But for now, we know the battle rages on. Job 1.7 warns that Satan roams through the earth, going back and forth on it. And 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says he prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And Jesus in John 10 verse 10 warns us that he comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. And we have every reason for believing that Satan's handiwork inspires wars and great human conflict. 
Indeed, Revelation 12 verse 9 teaches us Satan leads the whole world astray. 2 Corinthians 11:14 tells us he masquerades as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says that he blinds the minds of unbelievers. Ephesians 2 verse 2 tells us that he is the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient to God. Well, you know, we could go on and on. But we've also seen that although Satan can only be in one place at one time, he does make his influence felt by a host of fallen angels whom he calls demons who are under his dominion. Satan controls and directs and commands a vast host of those who are under his command. We'll spend more time later in our series on the matter of what demons do in the world, but for our purposes today, I wish to address the matter of demon possession and the response of believers. We noticed yesterday that demon possession consists of a demon, or in some cases more than one demon, actually entering into a human being. When such a matter occurs, the demon or demons use that person as a base of operations. And in many cases, the person possessed is caused to go insane and also exhibits bizarre behavior. But as we also noticed yesterday, even though such a matter is rare and unusual, and yet it does occur. And I would argue that the frequency of such occurrences, as was true in ancient Israel, has a great deal to do with a culture's involvement in idols, which, as we have seen, is inspired by the demonic realm. But the occurrence of demon possession, while it's rare, has some Christians deeply disturbed. I remember a conversation with a Christian who came from a culture in which voodoo and other occultic practices were commonplace. And he stated to me most emphatically that a great many Christians also had experienced demonic possession. So we need to ask ourselves, is that so? And does the Bible speak to this specific issue? Well, in order to get at that question properly, let's begin by defining what happens at the new birth or at the point of our conversion when we become new creatures in Christ. Everyone who has surrendered his or her life into the hands of Jesus has witnessed an astounding miracle. Something new has been born. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The new birth has now assured us of heaven when we die and has changed everything here and now as well. This is especially felt in the realm of spiritual warfare. Colossians 1 verse 13, which I have chosen to be the theme of this address, tells us, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. See, this rescue from the dominion of darkness is a rescue from Satan and his dark kingdom of demons and their effects. Satan is no longer able to do to followers of Jesus what he is able to do to those who don't know Christ. You know, the most explicit description of this new relationship, it's found in Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. As for you, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, 
God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even while we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now, from these passages, I'm coming to a conclusion. Conversion is a transfer from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Christ. Christians now live in a different realm. We're not dead in Satan's grasp. We're alive in Christ's care. We no longer are the property of the evil one, for as 1 Peter 1.19 tells us, we've been purchased with the precious blood of Christ. And I assume, therefore, that Christians just can't be demon-possessed. Since 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that our bodies are the temple of the Spirit, well, I assume that our bodies are now in the possession of the one who is stronger than the demons. And yet many Christians are confused about what to make of spiritual warfare, especially after conversion. You know, many Christians still testify that they sense a great warfare around their lives. Some have even wondered whether a demon is living inside them especially when they find themselves struggling with sin that doesn't immediately disappear when they come to Christ. Some Christians have sensed demonic attack, and even a few have experienced bizarre behavior. And the question is this, what are we to make of that? And so a great deal of confusion reigns among Christians. And I want to make two very important observations. The first is that it is necessary to affirm the genuineness of the experience of spiritual warfare after conversion. I take very seriously the reports of Christians in their warfare with demons. And the second observation surrounds itself around the value of these experiences. Experiences with demons are an unreliable guide to truth. Demons frequently lie and they attempt to deceive. Any theology of spiritual warfare can take as its starting place the experience itself. You see, any experience with demons can be interpreted in many different ways. We believe that the only reliable interpreter of experience is the Scriptures. The Bible is the Word of God which accurately teaches us how to interpret our experience with demons. And so, we must learn to trust what the Bible teaches and not what the demons want us to believe. We never get tired of hearing how listeners are impacted by the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. It's always such an honor when you take the time to let us know the ways you've been encouraged. One Back to the Bible Canada listener recently wrote, I'm grateful for your encouraging and truthful teaching of God's Word. May God continue to richly bless this ministry. Susan, a listener of Laugh Again with Phil Calloy wrote, I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart. There are so many days in which I need a boost of encouragement and an uplifting perspective on life. I love the way you approach each day with a smile. Thanks for making me laugh. If you'd like to share with us your spiritual journey and how it's been impacted through these ministries, don't hesitate to do so. Just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. You know, I believe that based on Scripture, every single believer in Jesus should make at least three important affirmations about spiritual warfare. Number one, 
Let's acknowledge that truly born-again believers can't be possessed by demons. Demons can't live inside of us. Have a look at 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Have a look at 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 16. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Have a look at 1 John 5.18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. And we must therefore conclude, whenever anyone is truly converted to Christ, Christ has also provided for him or her a special protection, not afforded to them prior to coming to Christ. Christians should therefore rest secure in the knowledge that Christ will never abandon them. They'll never be handed over to demons inhabiting their bodies or souls. Do you hear this? You need to rest in the assurance that Christ himself will guard and protect you. You are safe in him. Stop fearing. Stop letting the fears of others or unfounded stories disturb you. You have a strong defender. You trust him. Okay, let's make our second affirmation. The Bible does tell us that we believers are locked into spiritual warfare. See, although believers are protected, we readily acknowledge a real and genuine warfare with the forces of evil. The Bible teaches that all temptation comes to us from one of three sources. The first is called the world, and that's the influence of culture, which is at variance to the commands of Christ. The second source of temptation comes from our own flesh. This refers to the lower nature or the tendency towards sin found within each of us. And the third source of temptation comes from Satan and the demonic realm. It is the task of Satan and demons to influence and seduce believers into evil behavior. And Scripture acknowledges a number of ways in which this warfare is fought. You know, the first and most obvious avenue of this warfare is in temptation to sin and to yield to the external pressures we feel. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 5, Paul is speaking of his concern for the Christians in the ancient Greek city of Thessalonica. And he says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now, the context of that passage is, you know, the Thessalonian Christians were being persecuted and they were suffering for their faith. And Paul is concerned that no one of the Christians in that city should be moved, or as we might put it, to be rocked by these trials. You know, Paul was aware that the evil one was working out these sufferings to tempt Christians to despair. Or look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. There Paul writes, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, the context here has to do with the many false teachers that had descended on Corinth and that as Eve had been deceived, so the Christians in Corinth might also be deceived. I hope you see a pattern developing. You know, it is the flesh that tempts us from within, but it is Satan who either through persecution or the hatred of the culture towards Christ or by false teachers should cause believers to lack confidence in Jesus or in their Bible. 
It's a temptation from without. But notice, it's not as if the demons are inside of our bodies because they're not. And that's the difference between the struggle we have with the flesh, which is a battle within, and the struggle with demons, which influence factors around us. So please, my dear Christian friend, would you note that? Now, of course, we know that Ephesians 4.27 says, In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. You know, evidently, some believers in the church in Ephesus had allowed their anger against other believers to spill over and remain unchecked. And Satan had used this sin to gain a foothold into their church and to fan the flames of division and accusation and even outright hatred of Christians against each other. But as we saw yesterday, that doesn't mean that the demons have gained a bit of ground inside the body of a believer. James 1 verse 14 reminds us that each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. This is true. But the devil uses the failures of believers to great effect in the wider culture. I mean, think, for instance, of famous pastors you who know, brought disgrace on the gospel because of their own personal sins. How the demons fan those things into flame, bringing reproach to Jesus and to his church. And that's really how the evil one works. These are his designs. Every Christian should pray the prayer of Psalm 69, verse 6. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. You see, our ancient enemy, seeing he can't slander us before the throne of God, seeks to slander us before the watching world. He hopes that others would turn from the faith because of the sins of God's people, especially those who are prominent among God's people. And this is his well-known strategy. And for this reason, pray, dear Christian friend, that you be found humble and faithful and repentant and walking daily in the Holy Spirit. So let's review. I've said there are three important affirmations that we should make about our spiritual warfare. The first is that we should acknowledge that we can't be demon-possessed, but we are protected from the evil one. And the second is that Satan greatly exploits believers either to fear or to doubt or to use their sin to great advantage. Now the third observation. The Bible promises believers that we can be victorious in our great struggle with the demonic realm. You know, in 2 Corinthians 2, 11 to 12, the Apostle Paul warns us Satan is attempting to outwit us. But lest we find that too disconcerting, he says, we are not ignorant of his schemes. Again, as is always the case, the context is significant. Someone in the church in Corinth had caused pain. Paul doesn't explain the pain, but he acknowledges the harm that was done. Now, furthermore, it seems the pain was directed at the Apostle Paul and against his apostolic authority. And then in verse 6, Paul mentions the punishment of the majority. Again, he doesn't specify, but we've got to assume he's referring to some sort of church discipline. But then he adds in verse 7 that the church should now turn and forgive the transgressor. He's concerned that the man who sinned should not be overwhelmed, he says, with excessive sorrow. The church, after the discipline, needed to, as a whole, affirm their love for this man who had sinned. And then Paul adds, I too will forgive the person you forgive so that you don't have to feel you're being disloyal to me when you forgive this man. 
I'm on board with you, he says. And it's after this that he adds, look, none of us are ignorant of Satan's schemes. We know that he whispers into our ears, telling us to hold grudges, doing anything he can to lengthen a dispute between believers, and so rendering the church of Jesus ineffective. But says Paul, we're on to the devil. We see what he's up to. And here's the important observation for all of us. When we focus on demon possession among Christians, we miss the mark. But when we see the strategies that Satan uses to blunt the sharp acts of the church so that we do damage to Christ's kingdom, then he wins a partial victory over us. So what's our observation? Is it not this, that we believers can be victorious in our struggle with the evil one? And we're most effective when we're aware of what Christ intends for us. The nature of temptation becomes apparent not when we become focused on Satan, but rather when we become focused on the truths of Scripture. The New Testament more frequently reminds us of the desires of Christ than the wiles of Satan. By focusing on Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the authority to resist. But even in our assaults by Satan, we're given an impressive promise. James 4 verse 7 assures us the following, Submit yourselves then to God, he says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's the promise. Resist him. Follow Christ. And in the end, Satan knows he's been defeated. John, another well-timed message, I think. And uh, But I got to ask you the question, even though perhaps Christians aren't demon-possessed, there are those that believe they're demon-possessed, so we can't ignore that. What do we do about that? Yeah, that's so important because we, I think we've all met, especially those of us in full-time Christian ministry, have met uh, you know Christians who exhibit bizarre behavior, and we wonder what to do with that. Um, and I would respond in two ways. One is, sometimes we're confused and we think a person is a believer simply because, you know, they've believed certain things to be true, but they've never been truly born again. So I think we want to check to see if a person is truly in Christ. And then the other thing we need to happen is we need to help true believers uh, get away from being gullible. I mean, if the deceiver can deceive you into thinking that he controls you, well, you're going to act that way. But the minute you begin to realize who you are in Christ and that he has no authority over you, well, you can then take your authority as a believer and act freely in Christ. So, uh, you know, one of those two things should help believers um, in doing that. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Invisible War, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Everyone has a story. We all come from a beginning and an end. And while it may go largely unnoticed by the world around us, God knows our story and he invites us to unite our story with his. The story of Jesus is not simply something we read. It's a drama which invites preparation and participation. We participate by faith and obedience. So thank you for your prayers and financial support that you offer this ministry. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to telling the whole story of God with consistent, clear teaching of the Bible. Your support ensures the truths of God's Word are taught daily. 
we ask you to consider a gift to support Bible teaching this month, perhaps for the first time, or by becoming a monthly partner. To give a gift, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.